Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am back with the best person ever in the whole wide world. It is Alex. And Alex, who have we got on today? Uh, this is going to be really good. This is an area you know nothing about and you admit you know nothing about. It's the Middle East, but I know that you're always interested to hear about it and we just got the perfect person to talk us through the recent history of the Middle East. So we've had my uncle on, haven't we, talking about um, his experiences in like f- further east than this, but um, this is going to be great. So we have with us today Simon Mayle, who's a retired Lieutenant General, decorated soldier, former Defence Senior Advisor to the Middle East and UK Government Security Envoy to Iraq, uh, author of Soldier in the Sand, A Personal History of the Modern Middle East. Simon, welcome. Good morning, Alex and uh, Alina. Very good morning. Lovely to be here. This is going to be so, so interesting. We're going to be looking, Alina, at some really key points in recent history in the Middle East. But before that... Uh, you were telling, I mean, obviously you're brilliantly well-placed to write this as an expert in the region and someone who spent much, much time there, but you are yourself a medievalist. Uh, how far back do we need to go to understand the tensions in the Middle East? I think you've got to go all the way back, really, I suspect, to um, the foundations of Islam. Um, there's got clearly huge cultural issues to do with uh, Iranian civilization, way pre-Islamic, obviously Egyptian civilization. Uh, the whole birthplace of, of civilization, or one of them was uh, the Euphrates Valley and the Tigris. So this is a hugely important, what we define very loosely generally as the Middle East, is a hugely important geographical part of, of, of the world. Uh, clearly, uh, at the time, the Achaemenids, uh, you know, the, the Persians were dominating all the way through to, to, to Greece, all the way east, almost to Cathay and in the Indian uh, the Indian subcontinent, you know, the Pharaonic empires had the Nile Delta all the way along North Africa. But the sort of contemporary interest, clearly, I suspect, you could take back to the birth of Muhammad and the ex- 
extraordinary uh, rapid expansion of the Islamic religion after his death, where the forces of Islam or the propagators of Islam reached the, the gates of Tours within a within a hundred years of the death of uh, the, the death of Muhammad. And up until that stage, you know, from I suppose Constantine, um, thanks to the, the spread of the Roman Empire, almost all the Mediterranean was Christian. And yet within two generations, the Holy Land was taken, uh, Anatolia was taken by the Muslims, they were going east, they destroyed the, the Persian Empire, and they'd taken all of North Africa, all of Spain, uh, and into France. And from there, for 1,300 years, really, there was a sort of confrontation between Christendom and Islam. Uh, important to understand the tensions within Christendom and within Islam, Sunni, Shia, Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants. Uh, but it has very firmly defined uh, the Middle East, as I say, has defined both its own region and, and, and other really important parts of the world, not least, uh, not least Europe. You've mentioned religion. I think we should stick to this because when we talk about these tensions in general, me, the person who knows nothing about this time period um, and, and, and this area of history, always thinks it's always down to the West and it's down to religion. So how much of this issue is actually down to the West? How much is down to religion and how much is down to cultural tensions? Well, it's a, it's a, that's a fascinating question, Alina, because there is a temptation to beat ourselves up. And as I say, it goes back, interestingly, to uh, the fact that the Islamic religion, the third of the great three monotheistic religions, the last one, Judaism, Christianity, absolutely defined itself as a militant religion early on and, and absolutely burst out of the, uh, the Middle East. As I say, it destroyed the, the, the huge Persian Empire, it took over Egypt, it smashed Byzantium, it smashed um, and eventually expanded into the Mediterranean up through the Balkans. But obviously, for the last 500 years, uh, it is a story of, of, of encroachment by the West, expansion by the West, Columbus, Vasco da Gama, breaking out technological revolutions. Um, and there was a certain feeling that it was the West on the offensive. I mean, you can take that back to the Crusades. But in many ways, it's often been a counteroffensive against a very, very um, vibrant, young, ambitious, aggressive religion on the other side. And so we... You come into the 21st century and the 20th century and the Osama bin Laden and the attacks on 9-11. And there is a touch of saying, well, this is revenge or this is to come back at the West. But for centuries, it was the West that were on the back foot against a very vibrant, very aggressive, very dynamic military religion, Islam. So hence, I would, I would argue again, because we're all historians here and most of your, uh, your, your, most of your listeners have an interest in history. There's, it really is important to have a firm grounding in history in order to put contemporary events into context or, or trace their roots. Um, you know, dare I say, without flattering you, you both in your organisation, how terrific that you, you, know, you, you, you've gathered up people who are interested in history, either, either because they're experts or because they, they, really, um, they really enjoy hearing sort of discussions, which encourages them to learn more. I think um, it's important, isn't it, to appreciate that you, if you, you're not a good historian, if you can ever give anyone a straight answer, and the answer is the answer no one wants to hear, which is everyone's to blame, but also it's no one's fault, really. It's just yeah. history. Well, well you're absolutely right, Alex. There's, there's nuance in there. It's important nuance. And undoubtedly, which side of the fence you're on, 
is really important. And at at a certain stage, you know, it was the Arabs were leading the Sunni Islamic world. Um, In due course, the Turks under the Ottomans led the Sunni Islamic world. The Iranians have another another sort of great pride in their pre-Islamic history, but also in their, you know, the the, the Safavids and the Sasanians. These are really, really important parts of their own identity. Uh, as um, as as you know, in in, a, in the modern environment, uh, you can't understand Iran or even the Ayatollahs without understanding this deep-seated Iranian nationalism that goes with also their Shiism. You can't understand Egypt without understanding its attachment to its glorious imperial past. The Ottomans are the same. Modern Turkey, pe- present Erdogan today, very much influenced by you know the the, the, the that he is the standard bearer of Ottoman dominance for nearly 400 years. They've just named the third bridge over the Bosphorus, the Selim the Grim Bridge, because Selim the Grim was the person who destroyed the Mamluks in Egypt and took the sword and the cloak of Muhammad back to Istanbul. And they marched with that you know, into the Balkans in the, uh, under, um, uh, under Suleiman the Magnificent. So everybody has their mythology and their selective grievance and inspiration. And it's really important to understand that because you can say, I get where these people are coming from. I get the reference points that people like Osama bin Laden uh, and even Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi of, the, of ISIS, Islamic State, used to, to inspire their followers. However much we, we think, and we, we've denigrated history, really, in, in the West uh, and in our schools and universities. And you know, it's a part of it is the culture, culture wars. But to my mind, it's absolutely critical to have this, this understanding. Many of, many of our policy mistakes, I think, in the Middle East were our failure to understand the culture, the history, the, the touch points, the reference points um, that we were dealing with when we went into somewhere very, very complex like Iraq. Before we get to your professional life, um, your earliest experiences of the region uh, were not professional. So you were there as a child, weren't you, around the time of Suez? I was. That really does date me, frankly, Alex. You must have been like a babe in arms. I was, to be honest with you, born in the year of Suez. Okay. Uh, 1956. <laughs> but interestingly, my, both my grandparents independently had gone out to, you know, to, it, it's a bit in the book, which is, a, as you know, a bit of a sort of autobiographical military memoir, but using that as a scaffolding to explain the Middle East historically. Um, but both my grandparents went east of Suez. Um, and we're in India for a long time. So they were always going through the Suez Canal, the Red Sea, out to, out to, the, out to, uh, uh, to India. Um, but, uh, and then my father, when he came out of Santa, so he went into the Air Force, went to Egypt at the time when um, uh, Farouk was overthrown, King Farouk was overthrown by NASA. Uh, and then, of course, 56 Suez Crisis. Uh, and very shortly after that, my father was posted... Um, with my mother and myself as a very young, young child to Aden, which at that stage was headquarters Middle East Command. So although I was very young, it was those formative years between about three and five, which are so influential on, on young toddlers, you know, impressions, heat, light, sunshine, dust, hearing people speak in Arabic, that I think was quite, quite influential in my attraction to the region much later on when I went back to serve the Sultan of Oman, uh, having joined the army. But, uh, but in the meantime, fun enough, drawn to, drawn to medieval history, because I had very good te- teachers and tutors, I, I studied the Crusades at Oxford. So this uh, 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 sort of understanding the historical basis of some of these modern-day conflicts was, came, came about through sort of family 
family reasons and academic uh, academic inclination. I actually quite like this, that you kind of put your own history and your own experiences into the book that allows you to tell a bigger and greater story because after the Suez Canal, you, you talk about going to Oxford, you study history, you join the army. Yep. Um, how do you end up being sent out to the Middle East? Because you, you had a role to play in terms of actively looking for adventure. Am I correct? <laughs> well, it, it's an odd person who joins the army who doesn't have a slightly adventurous streak, I think. Uh, and it's certainly there's a Peter Pan element to all of us in the military as we get older and grey and fatter. Um, we still remember our... <laughs> we still re- you know, hang on to this youthful image of ourselves. And, and there's no doubt about it for a certain type of Brit, and I'm not just saying British, I was going to say English, but I'm, I'm a Mongol like many Brits. You know, my grandfather was Scottish, my grandmother was Irish, my other grandfather was Welsh, etc. Um, there's, there's an attraction to far away, far away parts of the world. And, um, and uh, I, I joined the army, of course, at a time when we'd withdrawn from East the Suez. In my book, I'm very critical of that decision in the 1970s. And so I joined the army after the university in 1979, when we were still focused on the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, interesting what's going on today, where Russia resurgent. Um, so we were, we, were, we were in Germany, or Northern Ireland at the time, and, we, and thank God for, forgets that that's hopefully most of the past. Um, and then along came, as I'd done five years in Germany, thoroughly enjoying it, um, but getting a little bit you know, hang about, where's the glamour of Sultan I was after? Somebody said, you should go to work for the Sultan of Oman. Um, and I was very unaware that we had a sort of quite a large presence there as a result of having supported Sultan Qaboos, rest in peace, died, died a couple of years ago, uh, a great leader of his country. And so I was sent out to command Omani soldiers. So I put my hand up and said, that's what I'd really like to do. I've done my Germany soldiering. I've been aged into my regiment. I've passed staff college. So I've got three years before I'm the right age to go. They said, what would you like to do? And somebody said, go to Oman. And so I flew out there and landed in the middle of summer, about this time of the year, back in 1985. And blisteringly hot um, and horribly humid. But, but what a beautiful it, country, though. Oh, it's, wonderful house. I mean, but when he know. came to the throne, there was, I think the statistic is there were four kilometres of paved roads in the whole country. Oh, Alex. And look at it now. That. And, I was and I, there when the country was still in mourning. Um, we got there just after he died. And, yeah, the, they were bereft. Well, he is absolute father of his nation, without yeah. doubt. And even when I was there, and that was 15 years after we had helped to an extent, you know, him overthrow his father. And then between us, we sort of defeated a communist insurgency down in the south. So the, the, the British influence was very strong. It was waning, quite rightly. The Sultan was Omanizing. Um, but I arrived there, and I think because of my experiences in Aden, and, and, you know, as I say, light, heat, sun, dust, Arabic, I felt almost I'm, I'm home. And then I was given command of over 100 Arab soldiers who didn't speak English. So I had to speak my sort of pretty poor Arabic. And I just had three of the best years of my life there. You know, it was a, I was the right age. I was, you know, commanding. I was doing the sort of thing my grandparents had done and my father had done. And it just absolutely embedded an interest in, in that part of the world. And when I picked it up, and I'm not claiming remotely to have been an expert then, I 
better you know, better informed now, but it, it, it just gave me an absolute love of it. And of I course, think the I Middle East back, gets in your blood, doesn't it? I it think absolutely does. And I spend time every past. year working in Jordan, and it just once I, I can't yeah. explain it. You have to go there to experience it, but it gets in your blood. You do, and I absolutely admire the culture. Um, I love it. Um, it's got all sorts of problems and tensions, which we may we may come on to. Um, but the family feel there, the tribal element, the traditional element, the pride, um, the, the, the generosity, and, and huge laughter. That's what I remember always in Oman, always laughing. And there's something very odd. I said it's very odd that so many, again, British people um, who come from a small, wet, cold island, well, not today, obviously, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, find this real affinity with, 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 with Arabs. And um, I just loved Command the Arabs. I just absolutely, every morning when I went on parade and saw all these great grinning faces of my soldiers, officers, my NCOs, it was a wonderful feeling of camaraderie and it absolutely got in my blood. And of course, very soon afterwards, I assumed I was going back for a continuation of the, you know, the Cold War. And very quickly, the, the, the wall fell and first Gulf Wars, Saddam was invading Kuwait and we were... We were out there, and I felt absolutely that's where I, I should be again because you know, I felt very comfortable. Um, one of few, one of the few officers in the British Army who could speak Arabic at that stage, and it was and it was still in. Um, so, as I say, a sort of a whole raft of family and professional and academic uh, influences in my life sort of came together in Oman, and then really defined the rest of my career, um, particularly after nine eleven, of course. Well, you were involved in Desert Storm stuff again. I'm sorry. Yes, <clears throat> yes I was, Lynn. And I, I was classically one of those who talked about seeking adventure. My, my regiment was not going to, was not due to go to, you know, the desert. Um, and um, I was in the Ministry of Defence and I, I bumped into my boss at, um, uh, who had been in Oman. And um, I said, look, General, you know, I should be there. I've commanded troops. I you know, speak Arabic. And he said, well, I'm going to talk to General Peter de la Bilia, who's always been my second in command, and I'll make sure he gets you out there. And I went back, like everybody, we were all, you know, we'd missed the Falklands War. We you know it's 40th anniversary. We know how, how dangerous that was, how what a sacrifice that was. But, you know, you're young, you're immortal. And I was determined I was going to be in, in this conflict. And I got a, a note from General Peter Lobilia saying, go and report to be um, operations officer for, um, for General Rupert Smith. And out I went, landing in absolutely a horrible dust storm, foul weather that winter of 1990. Um, but again, feeling this is where I should be. Um, it wasn't the war. We didn't fight the war we thought we were going to fight. Probably, thank goodness. Um, liberated Kuwait. And then one was involved quite a lot afterwards, again, because... I spoke Arabic, so I, I could go and talk to Egyptians, Syrians. Obviously, the Kuwaitis talked a lot to Iraqi prisoners of war. So, again, I was very just fortunate to be somewhere where I felt I should be at a, at a particular time in my career and life. What are your overriding memories of that campaign? In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. 
We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. I think the scale of it, I think it was just such a, it, it, it sort of just came out of nowhere because we'd been so focused for so long on the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. Uh, and, you know, we, 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 all our training was really for Northwest, Northwest Europe. We'd been alongside the Americans, of course, in, in nature. And then it was suddenly the most extraordinary feeling at such short notice. And I remember being in the Ministry of Defence when somebody said, and the place was almost empty because it was about this time of the year and people were, you know, gone on leave. And somebody said, my goodness, Saddam Hussein's invaded Kuwait. And we watched this huge build-up and we suddenly found ourselves you know, on what we call the line of departure, waiting to go into Iraq, both nervous and excited, um, with absolutely no question about the legality, the legitimacy or the morality of going to evict the Iraqis from, from Kuwait. But equally very nervous that, that we were going to have, a, you know, it was going to be a, a major conflict, possibly with chemical weapons. Um, and looking around, and, you know, in, in the book, there's a couple of chapters really about One's well, the, both the experiences and, and the feeling. Um, but it was very much if you've joined to be a professional soldier, and that's why you have a volunteer army, you can't ever then complain about what you're sent to do or asked to do. You can't do this sort of thing with a conscripted army. But you felt this is where I, I need to be in. You know, I, I hope the dice roll in my favour. Let's jump ahead to 9-11. Um, everybody in this room... Hopefully, many people on the podcast actually remember. I think we all remember where we were on 9-11. But you talk very frankly about your reactions in the book. Can you tell us a bit more uh, about what you were doing when the news came and what you did in response? Yes, it was well, it was one of those extraordinary days. And, and you're absolutely right, Alina, but you do have to be a certain age. Uh, there's no doubt about it to remember. And it's very interesting. Any, anybody, you know, anybody's, you know, people over 20 were not born at the time of, 9-11, it's amazing, two decades have passed. Um, but for my generation, certainly, and I think anybody who was conscious of history or politics or watching television, it, it really was a, a defining moment. And, of course, we'd gone from focusing on the Soviet Union to focusing on the Balkans to an extent. Um, and we'd watched, of course, at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the whole Afghanistan, uh, the whole Afghanistan issue with the Soviet Union. And through the 90s, I don't think we were watching what was going on in Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, and, and the growth of Islamic terrorism. It was, of course, linked to a Palestine issue. Um, so we weren't <coughs> focusing that much. I was preparing my brigade to go to Kosovo. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, and I was morning my brigade in, in Tidworth. And I was in my headquarters, um, and I deliberately that day, instead of being in the easy option of camouflage kit, which is like a pair of brown, brown green, whatever, pajamas and frightfully comfortable, I was deliberately in, in barrack dress, in a highly polished shoes, in a freshly pressed shirt, etc. because all I was going to do was write, write reports. Um, and in came one of my staff officers, and this is before... 24-hour news, there was Sky Television, but we weren't really watching it and people didn't really have mobile phones particularly. And he said, oh, I think you ought to know, Brigadier, that we've um, a plane's just flown into one of the Twin Towers. And I think like many people, we processed it mentally at that stage that it was a, you know, a small light plane where some of the pilot had a heart attack or something awful. So you know, carry on writing, it's, it's of interest. And then 15 minutes later, somebody who only had a little television screen in his, in his office to watch test cricket, frankly, came in and said, bring it in, we've just had a second plane. And by this, it fly into, the, uh, fly into the, the, the Twin Towers. And at that stage, we thought, my goodness. And we'd seen bombings. We'd, there'd been an attack on the Twin Towers in 1993. There'd been two huge explosions at the U.S. Embassy in Kenya and Tanzania a few years before. So we knew there was... Islamist terrorism out there and, uh, and attacks taking place. But the sheer scale and bravado of, of attacking America in its heartland. And it really was like having a, you know, a bucket of ice cold water thrown on in one's face. And we suddenly thought, my God. And the instant feeling was, if it's New York now, it'll be London next. And we stood up the brigade because we, we just didn't know. And I had a phone call that said, right, airspace closed. There's been a, a, an attack. At that stage, of course, the pictures were beginning to come through, which, again, you know, you've just stunned. And I had to go and secure an airfield because all these aircraft were told, turn around, don't come in into American airspace. Um, and so we, we sat there, and I was supposed to have a dinner party that night. My parents were coming down, a number of people were there. We all said, well, what do we do? And uh, at that stage, we knew we weren't going to need the emergency airport. And we just knew the world had basically turned hugely. Um, and um, we went on with the dinner party. It felt like a bit of an act of defiance. But I was absolutely expecting something to happen, be it Paris, be it Berlin, be it, be it London. And from there on, of course, we were about to go on another big exercise in Oman. Uh, and I wasn't supposed to go on it, but the, the headquarters that was going to go on it then went off to organise basically the overthrow of the Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And we went out to run the exercise in Iman, which, of course, for me was, you know, great going back there. But the backdrop was, of course, the, uh, the, whole, the whole fallout of 9-11. And very shortly after that, as we were headed to Kosovo, an understanding that the Americans were very keen to go into Iraq and overthrow Saddam. So it was amazing the consequences, the drumbeat of... Um, of actions after the attacks of 9-11. Um, and we are still living with those echoes and reverberations today. 
it's such a lofty topic, isn't it, to talk about the impact of 9-11. But in terms of on the ground in the Middle East, what did it immediately do to the Middle East? Well, I think it radicalised the Middle East in many ways, uh, some of it. You know, we, it's very interesting always understanding that um, many people were, were, were shocked and horrified. Uh, many people genuinely thought, not in my name, you know, it's, you know, many Muslims said, not in my name, don't use the language of the Quran or jihad to justify this. Uh, many of the monarchical families knew that the Al-Qaeda brand was aimed not simply at the West, but at elements of uh, monarchs in the Middle East. You know, the number one, the number one target of Al-Qaeda is, in fact, the House of Saud, not the Americans. Many, uh, many Muslims, many Arabs, uh, because of the ambivalence towards the state of Israel, were very pro, very supportive of the attacks. Uh, many of the Iranians, again, who look on America as the great Satan, uh, who said that, you know, American and Western influence um, all the way back to the Crusader era, you know, this, this, this again, back to historical resonances, uh, should be, um, you know, this, this, this was um, vengeance, this was retribution. So uh, opinions were very, very mixed uh, in the Middle East about, about um, the attitude to the West. Um, and, and that continued. What, what is interesting, and again, I sort of captured it in the book a bit, is that prior to the attack, because Osama bin Laden had, I think in 96 and 98, issued a fatwa, he's not remotely uh, legitimized to issue fatwas, but kept talking about you know, the, the armies of Richard the Lionheart, Philip Augustus and Frederick Barbarossa are once again in the lands of the Prophet and and, and it is the duty of Muslims to attack them and kill them wherever they can. So this is the sort of language that was being used and actually had resonance among many people who felt a sense of grievance or, or a sense of uh, humiliation or a sense of, you know, uh, active, active resistance on behalf of the Palestinians. So this sort of understanding of these tensions in the, in the Middle East, really important to understand that not everybody aligns with what we set out as our own narrative. You're also deputy commander in Baghdad at the time. So do you, um, you've seen some things while you're out there. What kind of things did you see? Well, well, you know, I, I went, I was out in Baghdad in 2006. So I had been, Obviously around, uh, I was at the Royal College of Defence Studies in 2003. I'd just come back from six months in uh, Kosovo. So we're now a year and a bit beyond 9-11. But Al-Qaeda have been pushed out of Afghanistan. The Taliban have fallen. We're trying to bring in new constitutions in Afghanistan. But we're aware, uh, of course, that we're we're, we're planning to go into, um, into Iraq and overthrow yeah, so, so I'm watching it really from a, you know, a sabbatical year um, uh, at, at the Royal College of Defence Studies. Then I come back into the Ministry of Defence, and in uh, 2006, I'm told you're going to be the Deputy Commander in Baghdad. Now, by that stage, of course, so much of what we'd hoped for, possibly from, from the invasion and occupation of Iraq, was already going really badly wrong. You know, yes, the dam had fallen. That was not, frankly, the issue. That was a given once the Americans decided to do that. 
But the whole idea was then to have a good handover, build up a, you know, Iraq, use the oil wealth of the Iraqi people. But Iraq was such a complicated place. So by the time I went in 2006, A, back in the United Kingdom, it was becoming a really major political issue with Blair. Blair and Brown, of course, were falling out. Blair had said he was going to leave. Um, the British public had really lost faith. We were getting casualties, obviously, coming from Basra largely, although we were getting casualties, a few casualties from Afghanistan. And so the whole public support for the, uh, the, the Iraq uh, project was really, was really waning. But the Americans were absolutely on, on a hook uh, at this stage uh, because it was so important to them. And the U.S. military, of course, didn't want another, inverted commas, Vietnam on their hands. They could see strategic failure. So I went in there um, as one of the most senior British officers, deputy to the corps commander. Uh, and one was very conscious that the Americans were taking a, a real, a real operational kicking. Their casualty levels were high, as were, of course, the Iraqi people. And we were finding ourselves in the middle of a civil war. Um, we, had, we had Sunni Arabs on one side, a mixture of Al-Qaeda and insurgents who were ex-Bath Party members, and, of course, Iraqi patriots, uh, you know, nationalists who didn't like Westerners being in their country. We then had the Shia, who were supported by Iran, also trying to, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to attack the coalition, but also attack the Sunnis. Uh, we had the Kurds in the north. Um, and so we had a lot of support from al-Qaeda coming in, uh, the Assad regime in Syria. So going in there with a, a better understanding than most of this region allowed me at least to, to, to have a degree of influence in trying to say, look, you can't just put all the Sunni objection or opposition just in one basket. The al-Qaeda ideological terrorist element are very different from the patriotic Sunni Arab objection, not just to us there, but of course the fact that we were going to empower the Shia. And we need to understand why the Shia, although they're Arabs and they're Iraqis, are happy to be supported by the Iranians because this religious identity as a Shia, who have always been oppressed by the Sunnis, is for them more important than their Arab identity. And once we began to get more nuanced, and as I say, there's where a historian has a better chance of understanding that or demonstrating to Iraqis that we, we get this. And they go, right, well, you know, we've been telling you this. You know, don't keep lumping all Arabs together. Don't lump all Muslims together. Don't lump us Sunnis in with Al-Qaeda. You know, that's an ideological terrorist organization. We are old-fashioned, you know, mainstream religious attitude. So that's what I was trying to help the Americans think their way through. You know, as I won't say a bit part player, uh, but somebody who had influence because the British were the second largest contingent there. Um, and obviously going out on the ground a lot, we were trying to hand off to the Iraqis because quite rightly, we wanted them to have a responsibility for security in their own country. But we hadn't helped ourselves, Elena, as you'll remember, when Jerry Bremer and Rumsfeld debathized, and therefore threw everybody out who, frankly, was a teacher or a fireman or an engineer or bureaucrat, was, was, was thrown out of their job. And then we, we disbanded the Iraqi security forces. So we never had enough coalition troops there. We were trying to build a new set of security forces at a time when we were under huge attack 
um, as coalition, but people were trying to attack each other because we, we'd entered into a civil war that reflected so much of the history of that region where Turks, Kurds, Iranians, Arabs had, had fought for control of, of the region around that, going back to our initial conversation, the Tigris and Euphrates, the, you know, the birthplace of civilization. Um, but a failure to understand that was, had, had really fatally flawed the assumptions under which we began the occupation element after the invasion of Iraq. Uh, and the Brits, I suppose, suppose, comment not criticism with our greater interest in history and our sense of ourselves as a historical nation found it easier uh, to understand these things and engage with the Iraqis in many ways than our um, than some of our American friends. And as I say, that is absolutely simply opinion and commentary, not criticism. America is a very new country uh, and has huge strengths by virtue of that. But they found the complexity of Iraqi society very, very, um, very, very difficult to understand and, and, and to deal with and to, and to work out the various um, the various strands within it. And I, I like to think that's where some of the British officers, senior British officers with a, a love of history, were able to perhaps help some of the decision-making. You're obviously there in... You're there for a reason that isn't that isn't happy, and you're there for war. It's what an army does. Yep. That said, the Middle East has formed such a huge part of your life like not just your professional life because it is just your life um what are some of your favorite memories of it well you know even even in the the midst of um iraq going back to Lena's question where one saw some pretty grisly things and depressing things uh, and 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 part of the depression was you know iraqis fighting each other and outsiders many of them you know not iraqis coming in precisely to try and kill people um, and, and drive that even there, you know, the, 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 the fundamental strengths of that Arab Muslim culture always meant that every engagement, and one can sometimes understand why those engagements were, were, were unpleasant or, or harsh, uh, one drew some interesting sort of personal and professional qualities from. But so, you know, the, the wonderful times, like, you know, I vaguely, vaguely remember being in Aiden with my my mother going down the suit, let alone the three years I had in uh, Oman, let alone, uh, as I say, working alongside Iraqis, very, very patriotic, very, very committed Iraqis or going to visit families in the height of the troubles. Um, Let alone when I came back as the defence senior advisor for the Middle East and, you know, routinely was, you know, out in the Gulf, either in the majlises of kings or commanders in chief or sitting smoking a hubble bubble pipe, you know, in a in a small cafe or, you know, going to visit a you know, historical mosque. You know, I just every time I go to the Middle East, I I I just enjoy it. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way or anything. It's a it's a culture, it's a history, it's a it's a way of life that gets under your skin. Um and I, I just enjoy it and I love still going back. And I think near the end of my book, I remember saying to someone, you know, if, if, if the words, could you be in Beirut for lunch tomorrow, or Cairo, or Istanbul, or Moscow, I'm reaching for my passport. 
I'll see you there and I'll <laughs> run off and give it, you know, Salaamu Alaikum, Cape Halek, Sabah Al handshakes all around. Oh, you speak Arabic. Well, not really, but. And, yeah, and that, that's I'm, basically I'm, all of my Arabic exhausted. So <laughs> <laughs> those three phrases. Oh, and Anna Iglesia. Because people look at my skin colour and start jabbering on at me. I'm like, I don't understand a word you're saying. <laughs> but it is interesting, and I think we all know it with, with, with friends. It's just personality. If you go somewhere and you can demonstrate that you respect their culture, that you know something about it, that you can engage with them, that clearly you're affable people as you and Elena obviously are, you know, that you lean into things. You're there to, to listen. You're there to enjoy. You're there to be respectful you're definitely met halfway and that that was part of I think a why I enjoyed it and b why I had a successful professional career dealing with the Middle East I palpably I like to think exuded an enjoyment of these engagements yeah. be, be, it, be it the customs officer the policeman uh, the young you know bedou goat herd in the desert yeah. uh, you know the, the the brave Iraqi soldier the Kurd the Syrian the Lebanese the Egyptian um, and again, I don't want to, you know, one doesn't want to make any of this sound patronizing or anything. It's just going somewhere where you think the deep weight of history, you know, the really important cultural influences, um, and hopefully contributing to perhaps, you know, bridging some of those differences where one can, and being in a position then to influence policy here. Um, yeah. And as you know, you know, one of my greatest achievements, I like to think legacy, was, was in my role as the defense senior advisor for the Middle East, getting the British government to reverse the 1971 decision to withdraw from East to Suez. I mean, we've always been deployed out there and been on operations, etc. and people like myself sent there. But we have our first permanent military base east of Suez in Bahrain because I was able to take advantage of the opportunities to, 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 to push at an open door with, with friends in the Gulf who said, we'd love to have the British back on a much more permanent basis. You understand us, you know, you, you annoy us, you irritate us, you, dis, you routinely disappoint us. Um, but you know, of all the Western nations, you're the ones who are closest to us. You're the one who understand us. You know, Britain is the place we love going to. This is where we go to Sandhurst. We, we, we have links with your royal family. We love London. We invest in... <coughs> You know, we invest there. We welcome you here. Our armies are modelled on your, yours. Um, and uh, and sometimes I think we in Britain or our politicians fail to understand, still with what affection and respect we are viewed in that in that part of the world. And there's you know, huge opportunities. Uh, and again, we're very good, I think, at explaining that part of the world to um, often our American friends uh, in a way that other other, other countries can't do. And it's been it's been really satisfying and very fulfilling being part of that process. I just want to add because you're both uh, speaking about how amazing the Middle East is. I mean, Alex uh, convinced me to come out to Jordan earlier this year, and I also felt. I mean, I've been I've been to Israel. I spent time in Israel. I loved spending time in Israel. It's such a beautiful country. And then we went to Jordan and it was just a bigger eye opener. The people were so wonderful. The culture was amazing. I had such a great time that I desperately now I didn't want to go to Lebanon. I've got all of these plans to go around and spend more time in the Middle East. 
And I she just came home with the full outfit. She's got the Bedouin <laughs> coat around the campfire. I have a I have a Bedouin husband. Uh, for I, I work out there now on a month every year, dragging people around uh, on tours, looking at the Arab revolt. Um, and oh, brilliant, Alex. Uh, Lovely. Local guy yeah. Mohammed is now uh, nominally my Bedouin husband because we just lapse into married couples <laughs> three weeks every year. Uh, but you must come with us. It, it's great fun. But just on a more serious note, to end. Um, Further east still, what do you think the future holds? We're obviously watching events in Afghanistan and they're frankly depressing, aren't they? But are there reasons for optimism? I think it's easy to be gloomy, um, as you know. And I I always put up sort of three slides when I lecture on the Middle East. And and the first one is what I would call the Orientalist one. You know, these are images of the Middle East that people get. You know, it's Bedou in the desert, it's Dows, it's minarets, it's pyramids. Um, it's you know sunset over the desert. We all we all know. The second one, of course, is a rather more gloomy one. It's explosions. It's gunmen. It's it's people with Islamic State flags. It's it's Yemen. Uh, and then the third one is is normally you know it, it, empowerment of women, um, education, um, clearly uh, you know cultural hospitality and strength of families. Um, it's 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 universities. It's um, technical advance. Now, as I say, it's phased to generalise about the Middle East, but, you know, you've got Egypt, you've got Turkey, you've got Iran, and you might include, obviously, uh, you know, pa- pa- you've taken out Pakistan, Afghanistan. You've then got the Gulf, and then you've got that strip in the middle, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, very, very complex, precisely because of where it sits geographically. And so it is, on the one hand, you say, gloomily, there's too much population growth. There's too many young people. Uh, there aren't enough jobs. Uh, the attraction of the jihadi uh, ideology will continue to sweep up some of these, many of these young men. Uh, there's migration. There's violence. There's, there's there's all sorts of problems. On the other hand, you are saying that there is enthusiasm. There's youth. There's ambition. There's aspiration. Uh, undoubtedly, there are really major changes taking place in terms of, I would say, one of the big things, of course, is the role and position of women. Um, one shouldn't always go with the stereotype that women are disempowered. Behind, you know, within families, women are extremely powerful, but in public life, they have not been. But people like the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia are undoubtedly driving very, very strong reform movements that are now capitalising on the, um, you know, on, on that human capital that is, is, is there in the half of the popul- the female half of the population. So I always want to be optimistic because I'm a naturally optimistic person. Um, but I'm also very realistic as a result of sort of 40 years uh, in, 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 in the military. Um, I particularly think the Gulf has the money and the time. Hence, I'm a supporter of slow, steady reform there, which tackles some of the cultural issues that I know the Middle East has stereotypes and gets criticised for, because I think if you move events too fast, as we saw with the fall of the Shah of Iran, what you don't get is another bunch of nice reformists taking over from autocrats or, you know, monarchs. You you go backwards into the Ayatollahs or or worse, you know, the Islamic State um, results. So I think we should be absolutely supporting those areas of economic development that will offer the, the, the chance for these young men to 
marry, have children, have a job, contribute, not one where they're disenfranchised, unemployed, and attracted to some of these rather more extreme ideologies, um, which I'm afraid will always be there for, you know, disenfranchised young men will be looking for purpose in their life. Um, and so, and I think we need to reach out because, again, going back to an earlier question from Elena, you know, who's to blame, who's to sit back, who's to demonize? Well, the whole idea is the better we understand each other's cultures, the better we explain that this is not confrontational. You know, it's a small planet and we need to be trying where we can to come up with shared solutions. And, um, and we need to, wherever we can, walk away from confrontation and conflict because we, we just know how damaging it is for the weaker, weaker elements of society. So that's why I'm always very forceful about defending the monarchies in the Gulf, because I think they've been very good stewards of their wealth. Uh, and in many ways, they're, they're also being driven by um, the, the, the reform movements generated from outside and, and internally. And I think they're trying to ride that tiger in a, in a, in a very conservative, very conservative uh, culture and, uh, and environment. Um, and thank you so much for teaching me something new. Uh, very much appreciated always. Uh, I'm assuming loads of other people learned something new today. And as well, I just find your personal experiences in this so interesting that I think we could possibly talk for another five or six hours on this because <laughs> I'm very much engrossed. But unfortunately, we do have to stop our podcast um, and stop chatting away, even though we'd like to talk for much, much longer. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, all I can say, Len, thank you very much to you and Alex for the time. If people are interested, I genuinely think Soldier in the Sand would be a terrific introduction as a book to those who just like to join the dots up. But very, very many thanks to both of you. Absolutely. The book will be available on our History Hack bookshop. Buy it from us because then Simon gets his cut, the publisher gets his cut, independent bookshops get supported and we get a cut and Jeff Bezos does not spend your money on rocket fuel as that keeps telling everybody so hop over there and you'll be able to get yourself a copy Simon thanks so much thank you goodbye when our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts so to this end we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.